My guest today, Raina Plowright, is one of the world's leading researchers when it comes to how and why viruses sometimes jump from bats to humans. The reasons are as complex as they are interesting. The intuition may be that bats are the bad guys in this situation, but the intrusive actions of humans are the real issue. Raina is a professor at Cornell in the Department of Public and Ecosystem Health in the College of Veterinary Medicine, and she's currently leading a global research team that's studying the most important mechanisms that happen in between viruses originating in bats and humans getting infected with those viruses. She's collecting samples from bats in Asia, Africa, and Australia, which sounds challenging enough, but now factor in that there are 1,400 different bat species to parse out. Raina and I talk about her research, and we discuss her recent high-profile paper arguing for the importance of more investment in preventing pandemics in the first place, compared to putting all of our eggs in the basket of trying to respond to them after the fact. Treating pandemic prevention as a priority makes a lot of sense in more ways than one. It's a small price to pay compared with millions of people killed and trillions of dollars spent during the response to COVID-19. I'm Matt Fuchs. This is the Making Sense of Science podcast. Hi, Raina. Thank you for agreeing to talk for the Making Sense of Science podcast. Uh, congratulations on your new position at Cornell. How is your first week going? Oh, thank you. It's my third day, and so far it's been fabulous. Yeah, very, very honored to be at Cornell and involved in their Center for Sustainability and uh, a, new, a new department called the Department of Public and Ecosystem Health. Excellent. Yeah, that must be exciting and, and very busy. So I appreciate you taking time out of your uh, your first week there to uh, talk for the podcast. I also wanted to thank you for your contribution to an article uh, by Linda Marsa that will be appearing in a special magazine issue that I'm putting together with the Aspen Institute. And I'll, I'll put in a little plug for that magazine. It comes out on May 26th, featuring the work of incredible experts um, like yourself, that article by Linda in the magazine showcased your really interesting work, which is focused on the overall topic of the magazine, I, I think, which is the, the overlapping dilemmas of climate change and infectious disease. But that article doesn't get into your background, and uh, I'd love to hear about how you got into this fascinating work. And I, I've heard you talk about your quote-unquote long road to bats. And uh, can you talk about your training and the career trajectory that led you to focus on these very unique animals? Yes. Well, my original training was as a veterinarian. So I'm from Australia. And in Australia, you do your professional degree right after high school. So I was very fortunate that I trained as a veterinarian and then started working uh, in practice when I was relatively young, and uh, that then I think gave me lots more opportunities to explore other career avenues. I always wanted to do research. I always wanted to do something that was related to conservation, but I wasn't really sure what the pathway would be. And I, I went to uh, UC Davis to do a PhD in epidemiology at one point. And while I was there, I thought, well, I was interested in wildlife. I better do some courses in ecology. And so I, I, I attended a course that was by Tom Sheener. He's a National Academy member in ecology. And I just couldn't believe this whole field existed and I didn't know about it. And it really, I found my passion. I found really how my, my mind worked. So as a veterinarian, I was medically trained and as a medical professional, you are trained to think in a certain way. It's really this very logical progression of steps. Like you have an animal that comes into the clinic and it has jaundice. So it's mucous membranes around its eyes, for example, are yellow. And you think, well, it's, it's the liver. So it's hepatic or it's pre-hepatic or it's post-hepatic. And then you, you go down almost a drop-down menu style of thinking about how to approach a diagnosis. And, and that is very useful style of thinking, but it's so different from ecology. Ecology is really where you, th you have every piece of complexity thrown at you at once. You're trying to figure out how all of these, these processes at scales from, from molecular scales within cells all the way to global climate, 
interact at landscape levels, at local levels, to create patterns and processes. And everything's changing in space and time. It's it's really exciting. And uh, I also, during that, that period, I learned uh, ecology, but also learned that pathogens, so infections like viruses, are part of all of that complexity. They're all changing in space and time and influenced by, by patterns of climate, by patterns of, of habitat, uh, seasons, and so on. And I just, just fell in love with this field. So I really, I became a disease ecologist at that point in time. Yeah, and I, I imagine that those in- intersections that are so inherent to ecology are sort of a useful model for the broader intersections that are needed at this nexus between climate change and infectious disease. And I think that we'll I have a few questions about that later on, and it is the focus of, of the magazine issue with um, the Aspen Institute that it are both fascinating, but but also I think you you would agree very very complex to think about how all of the these um, challenging fields in and of themselves um, could be woven together more efficiently to find um, sort of um, these 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 solutions that uh, address multiple problems at the same time. But I, I wanted to to ask you about about bats specifically uh, because I find bats to be really fascinating animals. They seem to be the perfect host for dangerous viruses. And so I wanted to ask you, like, what makes bats the perfect host? But also, more broadly, do you have theories about why bats seem to enjoy such longevity? Like, I read somewhere that bats may have found the quote-unquote ultimate anti-aging serum. And I was like, oh, no, don't say that. Now people are going to go inject Bat blood. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I don't want this show to result in listeners injecting bat blood, uh, whatever you do, audience members. Uh, however, it's true, I think, that given they are small animals, they live an incredibly long time and they, they show a remarkable immunity to the negative effects such as inflammation from the viruses that they harbor. So, so what's going on with bats? Do they have special powers? Um, they really do. They are such unusual creatures, and I think you summarized it really well. We, when we think about animals and how long they live, we we think about this relationship between body mass and longevity. And as the body mass of an animal is larger, they live longer. So, like an elephant might live for seventy years, a horse will live for forty years, a mouse might live for two years, dog what, twelve years. But there are a couple of creatures that don't fit along that line, and they're bats and naked mole rats. <laughs> so bats have these incredibly long lifespans for their size. In fact, the longest-lived recorded bat was a 41 years a brand's bat, and it weighs around 5 grams. That's the weight of a nickel. <laughs> naked mole rats also have very unusual physiological adaptations to live underground in crowded conditions in, in, in societies, underground societies, and they have also developed this, this interesting longevity. But we think that that longevity is tied up with their ability to withstand the effects of infectious diseases. So we think they have DNA repair mechanisms that probably help to allow their their cells to be maintained for longer periods. And those same repair mechanisms may also help them to withstand the effects of viruses. It, it, it's a hypothesis. It needs a lot of work, but it's certainly a, a good story anyway to pursue. Um, they also are the only animals, only mammals that fly. And that's really quite extraordinary when you think of it. And they, they have a quite different adaptations to flight than birds. So birds have hollow bones. They're really light in their bone structure so they can lift off the ground. Mm-hmm. Bats are mammals. They don't have that same light structure. So it's quite a lot of effort to get themselves up in the air and then sustain flight. And to do that, they have to have extremely high metabolic rates, like 16-fold the resting metabolic rate. And even more interesting is they have to sustain that metabolic rate for long periods of time. So, so humans may be able to increase their metabolic rate to run the Olympic 100-meter sprint, but 
after that 100 meters, what do those athletes do? They're lying on the ground, huffing and puffing. <laughs> They're completely collapsed. But bats just keep going. And they might keep going for hundreds of miles during a migration. They, they were able to sustain that for very long periods. It's not really understood why, but again, it comes back to this potential DNA repair mechanism to withstand the effects of oxidative stress that their bodies should be occurring. Their, their bodies should be under this oxidative stress with free radicals that should be interfering with cell processes. Um, that should be happening, but it's not. And, and perhaps again, they have these, these mechanisms to withstand that. And that again could tie in with their ability to host infectious diseases without getting sick. It's really amazing and weird that they can fly in the face of their really high metabolic rates with this um, incredible longevity, but I, I guess that it does kind of come back to this repair uh, ability to repair DNA damage that is kind of a, a superpower. Um, really fascinating animals, and it'd be great to learn more about your work as a principal investigator of a, a global research team that's trying to determine important mechanisms that occur basically in between viruses originating in bats and humans getting infected. Now, what's the latest understanding of what makes bat excrete deadly pathogens and how could that knowledge help with preventing spillovers? I think there's a lot that we need to learn and it's really, really important to focus on this area. I think what's often forgotten as we're in the midst of this pandemic still is that this pandemic started with an infected bat on a landscape. It's hard for us to even imagine what an infected bat in a landscape really looks like. And maybe that's why we, we just don't really think about these issues. And we focus on things like spreading humans, vaccinations, therapeutics, and really controlling these outbreaks once they've happened. But there's this whole suite of, of processes that led to the, the pathogen leaving the bat and, and entering the human population. And, and those processes aren't always really straightforward. It's not as simple as a bat met human, virus jumped to human, we have a pandemic. It, it's actually pretty complicated. So firstly, uh, these bats have to be infected. They have to be shedding virus at levels that are large enough to produce an infectious dose that can infect another species. And often we see that happening when bats are stressed. So for example, with our field studies, we go back to the same populations again and again and again. We take samples and we look for virus and we then calculate how much virus is there every point in time and in space. And we'll often have real difficulty finding these viruses. They're often not there at all, or they're very, very low levels. And then all of a sudden we'll go back to the field site and we'll see a lot of virus. We'll see, for example, sometimes the majority of animals infected with the virus, or at least a large proportion infected and then excreting that virus in, in urine, if it's a hennepa virus or in feces, if it's a coronavirus. And those periods coincide with when the animals are stressed. For example, they don't have enough food to eat. Uh, that could be from the loss of, of habitat that provides the food. It could be from extreme climatic events that change food availability. It, it could be from a whole suite of different reasons. So there has to be this excretion of the virus, infection excretion of the virus, but then there has to also be a contact with a, another species. So mm -hmm. we think the coronaviruses are probably uh, entering the human population through an intermediate host. And that may be some uh, host that is in the wildlife markets. It could be, you know, for example, um, um, raccoon dogs are a potential intermediate host for SARS-CoV-2. So, for example, if a bat was brought into a wildlife market, uh, infected a raccoon dog, then that uh, animal could then propagate the virus through the populations of, of, of that animal and then through the supply chain, through the wildlife supply chain to eventually infect humans. So there's often this intermediate host and that's because humans and bats don't have that much contact. Mm. Another really good example is um, in the Australian system, we work on a, a virus called hendrovirus and it's a virus that not many people have heard about outside of Australia or outside of the infectious disease world, but it is extremely fatal. So 
So it has a 57% fatality rate in humans wow. and something like 75% fatality rate in horses. <laughs> and horses are the intermediate host. And this is because humans don't walk around under trees, sniffing grass, mm-hmm. licking grass, having contact with bat urine. But horses do that all day. So horses walk along um, sniffing the ground to make sure that the grass is not contaminated with the other horse urine or feces. Uh, they have this huge tidal volume of air that goes through the mucous membranes, through their respiratory tract. And so they have this potential contact with bat urine under trees where bats have been feeding. And they, so they have so much more exposure than humans. And then when horses become infected with Hendra virus, they then become so sick that they produce massive amounts of virus. So every organ system within the horse's body is full of virus. So every excreter from the horse is full of virus. And so then a human in contact with the horse has a massive exposure to that virus. So, so one, it's, it's that we have, these intermediate hosts often have a lot more exposure to humans, but they often produce a lot more virus than the bat does. We think the bats actually keep their infections in, in check so that they don't produce very much virus, maybe uh-huh. not even enough for us to become infected if we were exposed to it. Yeah, that's, uh, I know it's troubling that some of these um, viruses and infectious diseases have s- such high fatality rates. Um, you know, we think about COVID-19 and the effect that it's had, but I mean, I, I think that it's pretty clear at this point that it could have been even worse. And some of the um, trends that we're seeing with warmer temperatures and deforestation and other um, unfortunate uh, issues that we have to contend with could could really result in, in a much worse situation in the future, but um, you know, I, I read that you're you're currently in the initial research phase um, for for your work and studying these mechanisms and collecting samples from bats in Asia, Africa, and Australia, which sounds challenging enough. But then factor in that I think there are like over fourteen hundred bat species in the world. Um, so, are you actually on the ground doing this, collecting the the samples, and and what's how is that research going? Yes, we're on the ground collecting samples. So we're really in the field trying to understand how the ecology of these systems works. So how are the bats interacting with the environment? How is land use change, environmental change, changing the way the bats behave, where they locate themselves, what they eat, how they could potentially come in contact with humans? And really importantly, how they're excreting these viruses. So we think about, you can think about these viruses almost like, you remember the SARS hotspot maps? For example, Johns Hopkins had these these fabulous maps with big red dots across the screen, and we watched those dots get bigger and bigger and spread across the world at the beginning of the pandemic. Well, we think about the viruses and the bats in very similar ways. So how much virus is there at any point in time, and how is that changing over time? So we are in the field collecting these data so that we can build patterns. Well, how are, are these viruses moving space and time? What's causing these big upsurges of virus and what's causing big troughs of virus? If we could understand those factors, then maybe we could start to prevent the upsurges of virus in the bat population that then lead to the spillover to other species. But yeah. we're also collecting information. We're collecting information on the bat ecology and how they're interacting with the environment. So the immune system of the bat is actually this really nice nexus between the environmental stresses that they're experiencing and the virus that they're harboring. So if the immune system is affected uh, by the environment, then that can lead to the shedding of these viruses into the environment. We're really trying to understand that. And we're doing that by collecting a lot of samples when bats are in good condition and poor condition and comparing those samples and trying to understand what's different in what different circumstances. Yeah. And I I know that, um, you know, among the potential solutions that we could pursue to these these problems, um, a big part of it seems to be ecological conservation and ensuring that the the natural habitats of bats and other animals are 
not compromise in a way that's going to make them sort of leave or, you know, go to other um, areas that are more um, in contact with human populations. Um, and I, I wanted to ask, as part of that conversation, um, you know, you, you, you co-authored a, a paper earlier this month that I would encourage everyone to check out. It's online in one of the top science journals, Nature, in which you talked about the importance of prevention uh, and some of you know, the, the cost figures, you know, the uh, relatively low costs of uh, prevention strategies compared to you know, the, the millions of lives lost, trillions of dollars spent on COVID-19 pandemic, sort of like once the um, pandemic uh, is out of the bag, if you will, it, it is uh, extremely difficult to contain and, and costly and, um, and uh, there's a lot of um, uh, mortality uh, and morbidity involved in that. Uh, but I, I wanted to ask among the potential solutions to pursue is it worthwhile to think about the possibility, I know this is a, a long shot and the research just is not even close to being there, but editing the genomes of bats as a way to prevent future coronavirus pandemics, is that a line of research that you think holds any promise, similar to how research teams are exploring gene drive technologies to stop mosquitoes and mice from spreading malaria and Lyme disease? Or is this too risky to contemplate since no one knows how eliminating coronavirus would affect bats? It's interesting how humanity always wants a technological fix to a problem when sometimes the answer is actually really, really simple. So, so my, my answer is no, that would be really silly uh -huh. and not feasible, not logistically possible with all sorts of potential unintended consequences. Mm -hmm. So I think we can forget that one right now. Okay. Cross it off the but list. What, we'll cross that off the list. What is actually the, 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 the answer to this is, is relatively simple in what needs to be done, but the actual implementation of the solution is probably extraordinarily complex because it would involve changing people's behavior. And I mean, we think biology is complex, but to human behavior, that's way more complex. So what we're understanding is that the major drivers of these pathogens leaving animal communities and, and entering human communities is, is land use change and environmental stress. So if you think about back to the, the beginning of this pandemic, it starts with a bat that's infected with a coronavirus, could have been a progenitor to SARS-CoV-2 or something very similar to SARS-CoV-2 on a landscape. What are the processes that drove that virus out of the bat into humans? Well, they're going to be anything that brings people into contact with that. So that's building roads, that's fragmenting landscapes so that they have longer edges between human environments and wild environments. It's extractive industries, anything that's bringing, say, animals out of nature into wildlife trade or for bushmeat hunting. Um, it's the constant encroachment on natural habitats by humanity that leads to situations like bats not having the food in their natural environments and having to seek food in human environments. So it's that kind of process that we really need to be spending attention on. And in some of the places we work, the solution to this is relatively simple. For example, in Australia, we understand that the bats not feeding in native forests anymore. Many, many bat populations are not feeding in native forests because they're seeking new food in agricultural areas and, and urban areas. Of course, horses are in agricultural areas and horses are the intermediate host of Hendra virus. So when they seek that food, they then have contact with horses and transmit Hendra to horses and then occasionally uh, horses transmit that to humans. But we understand in that situation, if we replanted the critical winter habitat that, that bats need, so just four or five species of trees that provide nectar for bats in winter, that we would probably stop that whole cascade of events that leads to spillover. So it's relatively simple, right? We don't have to edit the genes of bats. We just have to plant trees. Yeah. Of course, yeah. it's not always so simple when we're talking about development, of, of human development. It's, it's actually... It's really the big challenge of our times because the same kinds of things we need to do to stop spillover are also the things we need to do to preserve biodiversity. They're what we need to do to prevent 
global warming, we 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 need to be um, thinking about these incredibly challenging challenging um, solutions and just tackling them at a level that I don't think society has got to yet. But it's it's so important that we start to think about what are these drivers that are are starting the whole cascade of processes that lead to the pandemic as opposed to just dealing with the pandemic once it's circulating in humans. Yeah, and I, I know that there are some really troubling examples of deforestation leading to more risk of an infectious disease. Um, like there's the example in Bangladesh of, of ban- uh, bats that carry the Nipah virus, which can kill. Uh, it has a, a very high fatality rate. Um, now roosting in areas of high human population density because their forest habitat has been almost entirely cleared. Um, I am curious, I, I saw an op-ed by Tyler Cowen, I think maybe five days ago, on environmental trade-offs. And, and he argues that we need to do more, uh, we need to be more willing to disrupt current animal habitats when building wind or hydroelectrical power. And his his perspective, which I you know I'd love to get your your thoughts on, and probably your your counter arguments, um, is that you know he gives the example of how erecting wind turbines often leads to the death of many birds, but he says that should be an acceptable loss in order to support a more robust long term supply of green energy, uh, which would end up benefiting birds and humans um, in the long run. And he also makes the argument that more construction density, uh, you know, like really dense cities actually reduce energy consumption, which can help to preserve the environment. Do you think that there, there's any legitimacy to the, these trade-offs that he's bringing out? Are there, are, there, um, are there upsides to clearing some of these habitats uh, if it's for purposes that are going to be environmentally friendly because there might be benefits in the long run to the animals that are involved? Well, I I certainly think there are going to be trade-offs in any approach that we take, but I would hope that we really understand what those trade-offs are. For example, if we're allowing, say, a species of bird or bat to succumb to wind turbines, if we could understand what the implications will be of losing that species, that would be an easier trade-off to make. So, for example, uh, what if the animal that is driven to low population levels or even extinction happens to be the only pollinator for a particular species of plant that is also really important, um, has its own important ecosystem service? So each creature is bound within this complex web that creates these important ecosystem processes for us. For example, we understand that the big terrestrial species bats, these big fruit bats in Australia, are actually the only species that can move the genetic material of plants across huge fragmented landscapes because they can fly hundreds and hundreds of kilometres from forest patch to forest patch. No other species could do that. And as we change the climate, it's going to become more and more important for forests to become more resilient. And certainly genetic diversity is going to be part of that resilience. So we take out the bats, we take out that pollination, um, we take out that resilience. And actually we're even losing that pollination before we lose the bats because part of the bat response to loss of habitat, loss of nectar, is to move into permanent colonies, roost sites in cities and urban areas where they're not pollinating large landscapes. Mm-hmm. So we're losing those ecosystem services. But we're losing these kinds of ecosystem services without even understanding that we're losing them. And so I, I, I wish that we could have the, the, the deep ecology of all of these systems understood before we're destroying them, taking them out. And, and this is really the problem with spillover in that we're seeing spillover of pathogens across the globe. But if you start to look at the ecology of those systems and look at the reservoir host, often we don't even know what the reservoir host is for the pathogen. And if we do, we know nothing about it. We don't know anything about what they eat, where they move, how they're responding to environmental change. We're completely blind. So all we see is the pathogen in the human community 
and then we react to that, which is essentially what we see with Ebola, for example. We don't know what the reservoir host is of Ebola. We just know that we see this pathogen in humans and we see deadly outbreaks and we deal with the outbreaks, but we don't know what triggers those outbreaks. Yeah, and I think that your your work to to figure that out and um, overall your your focus on prevention, preventing spillovers, doing the the the, um, the, the work that is uh, taking having the policies that are going to result in less deforestation, for example, and um, and 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 various other measures that are going to be important to counter climate change because the the warming temperatures are are another uh, driver of these increases in interactions among species that are novel and you know are going to lead to more exchanges of uh, or opportunities to transmit uh, infectious diseases uh, it's, it's just incredibly important to to get um, policymakers to focus on on those areas and I, I wanted to ask, you know, sort of this, these sort of steady state prevention efforts that we need to prevent spillovers, they tend to be invisible, right? Um, whereas the response is what gets the limelight after an outbreak has already occurred. When mitigation measures, you know, let's face it, they're, they're extremely difficult um, to, to implement in a way that's going um, to, uh, to, to help people. And how much success have you had in getting government and politicians and, and maybe donors uh, to focus on investing in preventing infectious disease in the first place. Well, that is so true. So if we prevent that spillover event and therefore we prevent the entire outbreak that would have occurred, then what do we observe? We, we, we observe nothing happens. And so then nothing happens for year after year after year, then it becomes really hard to maintain the kinds of funding to keep that prevention going because policymakers will say, well, that's not a problem. School is not a problem. Pandemics are not a problem. So why invest in, in this problem? Yet if we have constant spillovers and we're reacting with, say, multivalent vaccinations, say, early detection systems, therapeutics, well, there's this problem that we're constantly seeing and we're constantly investing in to, to try to mitigate. So it's much easier for our psyche to really understand that as, as, as a, a, a response. So I think there's this fundamental shift that needs to happen in a society and that we need to become proactive and not reactive. And I'm really not sure how to do that. I, I just, I, I don't know. I know there's probably fantastic psychologists thinking about this, social scientists thinking about this problem. Is How do you shift this fundamental issue in, in humanity to be reactive to what we see, to react to catastrophe rather than to pretend the, prevent the catastrophe in the first place? It's, it's extremely hard. I, I, I think there's maybe some issues too that, that, that feed into this. Um, one thing is that spillover is really forgotten. It's not, it's not studied. Um, the beginnings of a pandemic are very poorly understood, possibly because it happens within this context of huge complexity. Like these are problems that arise in nature, uh, where we have all these interacting systems. Uh, we have all of these uh, interactions with climate and land use and so on. Uh, there's not a lot of investment in trying to understand ecology, so often that's not even understood. It's hard to imagine. And then when we do do research in that area, there's not a financial financial benefit. There's not a, a licensed vaccine that comes out of this or a therapeutic that is sold uh, over the counter. It's it's really for the society society's good. So there isn't this this drive or motivation in the, the biomedical community to really focus on what's happening in the ecology of these systems. I, I think that needs to change. We haven't seen a lot of progress in, in the change there. For example, many of the pandemic treaties that are being negotiated right now are not even mentioning spillover. They're not talking at all about trying to prevent the events that trigger the, the cascade that leads to a pandemic. It's, it's just not even a topic of conversation. And I wish I could understand why that was. Um, I wish I could understand that much better so that I could really address that. Um, but it is a real, it's a real problem right now. It's we're just not investing in prevention or even understanding how to do prevention. 
where really the vast majority of resources are being pushed to response. They're being pushed to vaccines, to therapeutics and early detection. And I, I will add responses extremely critical. We absolutely have to invest in response because we're not going to prevent every spillover. But we should be at least having some proportion of our investment in the prevention of those events from happening in the first place. Yeah, that, that makes so much sense. I mean, we wouldn't want to underinvest in response and containment measures, um, but it seems like we we are underinvesting at that sort of uh, left of the boom um, window when uh, we can take some some relatively low cost steps um, uh, in order to, to have uh, a huge benefits. Um, and it seems like one of the big benefits of, you know, a focus on prevention is to modeling, right? I mean, because it seems like you could actually model a more discrete set of variables if prevention is your focus, because once an infectious disease gets introduced into human populations, you have to account for things like human health trends, like what's the status of the population's overall health that could either make them more vulnerable uh, or uh, or protect them if they're health if they're healthier, or things like social media propaganda. You know, how open is the population going to be to getting vaccines? And those things are very uh, <laughs> very difficult to model next year, let alone twenty to thirty yeah. years down the road. But yeah, a more prevention focused modeling approach seems more doable, right? I mean, is that is that fair to say? Well, I, I take your point. Human behavior is so difficult to predict, absolutely difficult to understand. And I just looking back at this pandemic and the events that took place, I could never have imagined how this played out. Actually, I, I was talking recently with someone who was involved in making the film Contagion, which was yeah. actually a very scientifically based film about uh, an influenza life virus. So I think it was maybe a Nipah-like virus that spread throughout the human population with high mortality hmm. rates. And they had a conspiracy theorist played by Jude Law, who was peddling <laughs> you know, homeopathy medicines for this pathogen and so on. And then um, one of the makers of the film said that seemed really outrageous at the time, but what they could never have predicted was, was that the reality was even more outrageous, that you'd have the president of the United States peddling yeah. conspiracy theory. Yeah. That was beyond imagination back then. So it wasn't even in the film. So yes, I, I just think the way this pandemic has played out, I would, would never have imagined it being the way it has been. Um, predicting ecology in, in some respects could be easier if we have the data. So these ecological systems are very complex. They're changing in time, they're changing in space, and we have all these different interactions. But once you start to understand those interactions, they can become predictable systems. So, for example, for Hendra virus system, we have all this complexity driving this virus in bats. But now we're going in and we're understanding what's driving the virus, what's driving the bat immune system, what's driving their behavior across the landscape with climate, with land use. We're putting together this picture and it actually becomes predictable. Mm. So if we do invest in understanding these ecological systems in getting data in the long term so collected over large extents of space many geographies and over large extents of time so we understand long-term patterns especially with climate where we have these big cycles that often are really influential if we invest in that understanding we will start to be able to make predictions and really understand how to stop these pathogens from leaking out of natural systems into human societies yeah i couldn't agree more and it does seem like data collection and research in the field is a huge part of the solution and a huge part of understanding how these mechanisms work. Um, I guess that, you know, I, I can already sort of foresee what your answer to this question is going to be, but I completely agree that we we need to stop seeing biodiversity as a victim to be saved by technology, right? And And you know, start seeing it for being one of our most valuable resources, and uh, you know, one that nurtures uh, us and, and you know inspires us, heals us. Um, but you know, 
I guess it's important to address the camps that are talking about uh, the fourth industrial revolution mitigating the effects of climate change. And I wonder about some of their arguments about the applications to, say, habitat protection. And we've seen machine learning and AI informing related work like surveillance of hotspots for spillovers and infectious disease. Do you think there's there's any room or is there any, is it a useful part of the conversation to be exploring new technologies to support the protection and restoration of habitats to help with preventing spillovers and pandemic pandemic risk? Like could we use agricultural technology, for example, to make food more available in bats native forests so they're not drawn into human areas? Or is that is that just tampering too much uh, to even um, be a legitimate part of the conversation? I, I think it's, it's a sidetrack. Uh-huh. I, I think that the solutions are not that complex. I know we really, really want a complex <laughs> technological solution, but actually the solutions are relatively simple. And they come down to some basic principles. One is we need to protect large, continuous extents of, of habitat so that we can preserve biodiversity on this planet, so that we can keep these pathogens in check, so we can keep them contained within natural systems. We need to reduce the amount of fragmentation of habitats. That will reduce the contact we have with other species. It will reduce the stress that makes animals shed much virus. Uh, It it will reduce the extractive industries that that come in and bring animals out of these habitats. Um, These are really relatively simple fixes that, as I said, they're, they're often very difficult to implement. But if we become sidetracked on trying to engineer trees to produce more food, well, you know, maybe we could, we could experiment with that and then understand the natural system dynamics better because we could manipulate the system and do big experiments. But really, as a solution, that's really seems quite silly to me. Hmm. I, I mean, I'll tell you what's happening in Australia, where we've identified the key, the key trigger for this whole Hendra virus emergence and cascade leading to spillover, death of people, death of, of horses. The trigger is the loss of their winter habitat. And hmm. there's just a handful of tree species that produce nectar in winter. And we've proposed that a solution to spillover is to replant those trees. But the, as we're proposing the solution, those trees are being cleared at a consistent rate. And they have been probably for the last maybe 30 to 70 years. We've, we've just plotted this out. We've done a whole bunch of analysis and showed that even right now, this rare winter habitat is being cleared at this consistent and very high rate. So here we are saying plant trees. At the same time, others are chopping down trees. Mm-hmm. It, it, it takes 20 years to grow a tree to produce nectar. So this makes no sense at all. So there mm-hmm. has to be a fundamental commitment to preserving these critical habitats. We need the data. We need the understanding of the systems. How do we know what are the critical habitats until we understand how these, these creatures behave and what their needs are, what their behaviors are? So we need a lot of focus on the research, on the ecology, behavior, understanding how they're reacting to environmental change so that we can suggest the most strategic interventions. But often the intervention is actually really simple. Yeah, that very simple and, and yet involve multiple fields. And, and one, one of the things that really comes through in the paper that you co-authored in Nature earlier this month is how pandemics are um, often perceived as being in the realm of health specialists who aren't attuned to the role of environmental degradation and the wildlife exploitation as key factors in um, the emergence of pathogens. And, you know, we see this issue in a lot of different fields, actually. I mean, I I would say human health is another one where, uh, you know, uh, there's good reason to think that many diseases at their root are fundamentally diseases of aging, and including COVID-19, which clearly had a, a disproportionate effect on older populations. Uh, that's that's a bit of a, a tangent, I guess. But I wanted to ask about frameworks that can bridge these seemingly competing areas. Um, in addition to One Health, you know, is, is One Health the best solution? Are, are there any flaws that you've seen with the One Health framework? 
And are there any other frameworks that you see as promising, maybe maybe more promising in some ways than One Health, to bridge gaps between specialists? I think One Health is a really great starting point. So One Health is this recognition that environmental health, human health, and animal health are all linked. And, and, and so that's a good place to start. Often, though, One Health really is, is implemented in a way where environmental scientists, veterinarians, and um, human, like, for example, medical scientists, maybe interact occasionally, talk about each other's work and where the intersections are, and that's really about it. And that's what we'd probably call like multidisciplinary interaction. But what is needed is a much deeper type of interaction amongst these, these scientists, what we'd call transdisciplinary. And even now, actually, National Science Foundation are calling it convergent research, which is asking for something even deeper. It's where experts from across different fields share theories, knowledge, frameworks, and data to create whole new ways of doing science, whole new ways of looking at systems. That's what we really need. And that, that's what our group is trying to do. We're trying to do this really deep transdisciplinary work so that instead of looking at a pandemic from a point of the virus being outside of the host, for example, on a surface in a wildlife market, we're starting to think about the pandemic from the point where that virus is circulating in natural populations, where a bat behavioral ecologist is understanding how those bats are moving the virus across the landscape. An immunologist is thinking about what allows the virus to escape the bat into the landscape. A behavioral scientist, social scientist is understanding the behaviors of people that are bringing them to the bat or to the virus, or to the economics of deforestation that bring people in to extract animals of the wildlife trade. Uh, we're, we're trying to think from every component, uh, we're putting it together with mathematical models because it's all complex, all changing constantly. Uh, mathematical models allow us to put all of these patterns together to see what's going to happen in the future or what might be the fundamental driver of this pattern. So we're trying to do that kind of research so we understand pandemics in this really holistic way from the moment of that virus in, in nature to the moment it's it's traveling across the human population globally. Yeah, that's uh, important, challenging work to, to seam together those uh, different fields, but it seems like it's at least a problem that a lot of smart people are um, thinking about and um, I guess that, you know, I, my last question is is about, you know, it seems like the research community is increasingly getting this, but the political community is, remains some gaps there. Um, and I, in your, I think it was in your, your paper uh, in May uh, earlier this month that, um, that talks about the um, Biden administration um, releasing guidance on how to improve uh, the approaches to pandemics that um, just gave really short shrift to spillover and prevention strategies. And it just doesn't bode well, uh, given how important those measures are. Given some of the obstacles to getting policymakers to invest in spillover prevention and how closely these issues are related to climate change, would it make sense strategically to try to get national action plans for spillover prevention that you talk about in your paper folded into international climate agreements that, although they certainly have challenges, do seem to have the attention of many policymakers? Yes, I, I think that would be really productive. As we discuss in the paper, we think of habitat preservation as a really important part of climate mitigation, but it's actually a really poorly funded component of climate mitigation. But if we're just preserving habitat, that may not be enough to stop spillover. Stopping spillover requires us to think very strategically about where the reservoir hosts are of pathogens that might be pandemic pathogens, thinking about where are those land use changes, those pressures on those populations, like where is human population density high, where is land use change really high. Um, so we're thinking and then about the ecology of the, the species, what, what are the specific pressures on those species that we need to alleviate to stop that spillover event. 
So it needs to be very strategic. And that could, though, actually really coincide with, with some of the strategies that are needed for climate mitigation and biodiversity preservation. So those intersections really need to be explored. I, I think that one of the reasons why that it's not being incorporated into policy is that the strategies so far are presented in a very vague way, like stop deforestation, reduce fragmentation, preserve large landscapes, which I just talked about as being very obvious and very simple. But I think almost it may be too simple for policymakers to really understand. So what our group is trying to do right now is to think very deeply and engage with people who are on the ground in parts of Asia and Africa in systems where spillover is likely to, to think about what are the, the real on the ground processes that are going to drive these pathogens out into the human community and what are the ecological countermeasures that we can take to stop that process from happening. And, and we're deliberately putting this in this language of countermeasures because we're all talking about vaccines and therapeutics. We're talking about medical countermeasures. So why not talk about ecological countermeasures? And maybe our ecological countermeasures then can be a really important part of this whole suite of strategies that prevent pandemics. Well, Raina, I'm uh, very grateful that you're uh, a leading voice in making those arguments because I do agree that they seem incredibly important and they should be a huge part of the conversation that policymakers are having. Um, uh, so uh, thank you for the critical work that you're doing. Uh, I wish you all the best with it. I wish you all the best in your move to Cornell. I'm uh, very excited uh, for your, your new beginning there, uh, as uh, am I also very excited to feature you on this podcast and in the upcoming magazine issue that'll be published later this month. So thank you for sharing your thoughts and your work with me for the, uh, the leaps.org podcast. Thank you. It's been really fun talking with you. Thanks for listening to the Making Sense of Science podcast. If you like the show and you want to hear more from the best thinkers of our time to help make sense of the latest health innovations and their impact on our rapidly changing world, please hit the follow button. And in the meantime, please visit our online magazine at leaps.org, where you can read in-depth articles examining health breakthroughs through the lens of rational optimism. Enjoy the leaps.org platform, and I hope you take care. Until next time. <laughs>